You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Got this message from Danny Davis. They're on vacation, but I'm going to read it because I think it's true. I hope it's true. It said, hey, brother, praying for your message today. Feel someone may need to hear it. So, we'll see if it's you. I trust by the power of the Spirit it is going to be used. All right, we are, as you know, in our sermon series, going through the Sermon on the Mount. We're taking our time going through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, because there's just so much content here. It's easy to go slow. It's even necessary to go slow, I think. Uh, If you've been tracking, I'm sure you've noticed that Every statement made by our Lord is just like packed with meaning. Uh, this sermon series is unlike, and I've been pointing this out, unlike the book of Esther, which we went through at the beginning of the year, where we kind of went through that in eight weeks, and we're just really hitting the brakes here when we go through the Sermon on the Mount. And you know, those reasons for that, different genre dictates how you preach a particular book of the Bible. The content in any given book of the Bible dictates how, how it's preached. Um, what we see in the Sermon on the Mount is that every week's just a new topic. It's like we were talking about adultery and lust a couple weeks ago, and it was divorce, and now we got a different topic today. They're all connected, right? I'm not saying they're not, they're all, they're not disconnected. They are connected, and they're connected to this theme of living distinctly before God. So if you want to know what it means to live distinctly before God, we go to the Sermon on the Mount because we're faced with many different ways in which God has called us to live distinctly in this world before our God. And today we come face to face with the challenging theme of not retaliating when you're wronged. And before I begin, you all need to be warned that Jesus, not Sean Powers, but that Jesus is going to make you uncomfortable. At least some of you is going to make you uncomfortable this morning. If you want to be comfortable listening to a sermon, you need to find another church. I really mean that. There are times when the teachings of Christ are meant to make you uncomfortable. Jesus is going to make you uncomfortable to help you see beyond the temporal and to see the spiritual. I am not suggesting that Jesus encourages us to like suspend reality to see spiritual matters. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what Jesus is saying. I am suggesting that we're so ensconced in our world, we're so ensconced with our puny little realities, that it becomes difficult to see the higher and greater virtues being put before us by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. We become too enthralled with what's going on horizontally that we forget what's going on vertically. So I I expect a little bit of a course correction for some of you this morning. It sure has been for me as I've studied this text. Uh, But bear the following in mind. The teachings of Christ are hard. Many of them are hard. But they're good. They're real good. Briefly pray and then we'll get in. Heavenly Father, I need your help this morning. These words are in the Gospel of Matthew with reason and purpose. And I'm help me, Lord, to reveal that purpose. Lord, I pray that we'd also apply uh, what you have spoken to us. 
So give me the right words to preach. I pray for all of our hearts that it would be soft to receive. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Knowing Jesus as your Savior and Lord is a game changer. Game changer. Like, I grew up in the era of Michael Jordan. He was the game changer for the NBA. Best player of all time. Don't tell me about LeBron James. But this is like an understatement compared to knowing Christ and Him crucified. I am understating it because of this. Before knowing Christ, you, are a, you were a child of wrath. Right? You were an object of God's wrath. But now you are a child of God. Everything changes. Here's a story I read from Martin Lloyd-Jones to illustrate my point. Martin Lloyd-Jones retells the story of a man named Billy Bray. Billy Bray. Uh, you can easily look him up online. I think he has his own like Wikipedia page. Jones says Bray was a pugilist, which means a person who likes to fight, right? He's just a fighter. Not like a professional boxer, but just the guy would go to work, wants to fight. You go to the bar, he wants to fight. Bray also worked in the mines of, Cor of the Cornish area of England, and I would assume it was a coal mine. Men feared Bray. He was the guy in the room that you did not ever want to cross. And then one day, the Lord saved Bray, just like that. One co-worker decided to test Billy Bray. Jones states, and I quote, Without any provocation at all, he struck Billy Bray, who should have easily revenged himself upon him and laid him down unconscious on the ground. But instead of doing that, Billy Bray looked at him and said, May God forgive you even as I forgive you. Bray would then become one of the mighty evangelists throughout England. Before knowing the Lord, Bray would have pummeled his co-worker. You come at me, I'm going to come at you. It would have been a one-round fight. Bray would have had his vengeance, and some would say, rightly so, right? Someone punches you in the face, you're going to respond, right? According to some, Bray would have been right to retaliate. Why? Because his honor was at stake. The world applauds this kind of response. Right? Taking vengeance, retaliation. But once again, what the flesh and the world want are at odds with our Lord Jesus and the Spirit. As we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls his followers, and I've been saying this over and over, and I said it already, he calls his followers to live distinctly in the world, to not live like the world. Billy Bray's non-action was a demonstration of his Christian distinctiveness. Do you want to know what it means to be a salty Christian? That was Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16. Well, here you go. If you apply today's passage, like I said earlier in a prayer, you will leave a salty residue upon all the people you come in contact with on a daily basis. 
Once again, our, our Lord offers a correction to the teachings of the Pharisees. He says, and on the outset, you have heard it said, right? All these guys were saying, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. So at this point in the Sermon on the Mount, you get the sense that most of the religious bigwigs missed the boat when it came to interpreting the Bible. Because Jesus is coming along over and over saying, once again, they told you, but nah, I'm telling you. So let's see how Jesus addresses the latest issue. First, Jesus exposes the false teachings of the Pharisees. We need to understand why Jesus pushes back in any significant way. I mean, Jesus is asking us to do the very opposite of what is being taught. We know why. Next, I want to point out several ways how this passage is misused in our day, and it certainly is. We have a new set of Pharisees running around spouting out lies. And then last, we will dial into the correction. Jesus is saying no to something and saying yes to something else, and we need to know the correction because we probably need that for ourselves. Right? The false teaching is pretty simple, right? If you get kicked in the stomach, go ahead and kick that out of the person in the stomach. Have at it. No need to consider the context. Don't worry about the motive. The action is what's important. The punishment is to fit the crime, and you are supposed to have the freedom to met out the punishment for yourself. Some federal and, and state laws implement the letter of this law. I don't know if you've noticed that. For example, in some states, if a person is convicted of murder, they can receive the death penalty. If a father does not pay child support, the IRS might take the money directly out of their paycheck or their account. I'm not arguing for or against these punishments, but you see, the, you see this particular principle at work in our society. So, where is all this coming from? The phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's being pulled from Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, and Deuteronomy 19. So we have some Old Testament precedent to look at. We see it enough in the Old Testament to understand why the phrase carried significance during the time of Christ. In the Old Testament, the phrase was a judicial law. You know, some Christians um, have sensibilities that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth seems harsh. And we have other Christians who think it's not harsh enough. I know many people who believe that a punishment should not fit the crime. But this law in the Old Testament um, did several things for Israel. And it's important to understand the context of what was going on in the Old Testament because it helps us understand what's going on at the, during the time of Christ. First, it gave judges a clear sense of how to judge a crime. Just like today, the people of God in the Old Testament had to deal with property violations, personal injury, and manslaughter. Nothing new was under the sun. Sinner's going to sin, and sometimes a sinner needs a punishment. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was a judicial guide. Second, this particular law actually restrained cruelty and excessive retribution. For example, Genesis 4, 
So going back before the time the law was given to Moses, going back to Genesis 4. So garden, Genesis 3, the fall, Genesis 4. What do we see? Lamech tells his wives, I have killed men for wounding me. That's Genesis 4, verse 23. I wonder if Lamech is like bragging about his cruelty. If the law were around during the time of Lamech, his response to being wounded would have been restrained. So what is the problem during the time of Christ? It seems that the Pharisees were taking the principle out of the legal realm and applying it to an individual's life. There's no longer this objective judge to make determination. But guess who's the judge and jury? You get to be. If a, neighbor do- a neighbor's dog pees on your lawn, feel free to grab your dog and have it go to his lawn, right? And if you don't have a dog, go get another neighbor's dog to take it over to his lawn. An eye for an eye and a peed lawn for a peed lawn. That's that kind of attitude that's being pervaded that Christ is pushing back against. And Jesus says, no, no way, knock it off. Now, Jesus is not doing away with the law. He is correcting the interpretation and application of the law. Uh, my friend John Calvin provides some helpful comments on the matter. He says this, Christ informs them, on the contrary, that though judges were entrusted with the defense of the community and were invested with authority to restrain the wicked and repress their violence, yet it is the duty of every man and woman to bear patiently the injuries which he receives. So Jesus isn't concerned with governmental systems. He's concerned about what's going on in your heart. He's not concerned with the judicial system. He wants to know what's going on right here in you. So here's a summary of the correction. The way you govern your personal life is not an eye for an eye. If your life is governed by this law, you are not living rightly before God. You're not living distinctly before God. Following the initial correction from Christ in verses 38 and 39, we were given several examples of what it means to resist the evil one. But before we can get to those examples, we need to sort out what it means to resist the evil one. Over the years, like I've said, this passage has been abused. These words have been widely taken out of context and misunderstood. We need to clearly know what our Lord explicitly says before seeing how the examples relate to this principle. So here's how the principle has been abused in our day. Uh, The Quakers, a Christian sect, adheres to pacifism, right? Quakers will read this passage and say there's no circumstance in which a person may commit violence. Period, right? That's just the bottom line. It's the extreme end of pacifism, and in particular, this religious sect called the Quakers. No violence. I am sure I disagree with the extreme side of the Quakers. I, I do not think Jesus is saying you should not commit violence regardless of the situation. Like, here's a fresh example that came to my mind and that will resonate with many of you. The tragic shooting in Uvalde, Texas, several weeks ago, sparked a question the following Sunday with several people. We were actually outside 
after church talking. We meet at an elementary school, which means you and I are not allowed to like carry a gun legally, right? It's against federal law. So the question was asked of me, what should be done if, heaven forbid, there were an active shooter in our midst? I gave a violent response. What I said is, every guy, and I'm being very explicit when I say every man, should make it his duty to make a a race to the active shooter. All you dudes. First one there wins. You might lose your life, but you'll save everyone else. It's a violent response, is it not? But I think a necessary one. When our Lord says, resist the evil one, I do not think he has in mind that we're to sit on our hands when other people are being threatened. Here's an historical example. Many people call Dietrich Bonhoeffer a pacifist. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor and theologian during World War II. He might have had one of the most brilliant minds of his time, and he died in a Nazi concentration camp way too early in 1945 at the end of World War II at the age of 39. I'm 41. He was undoubtedly a man of peace. He hated war. He's on record when you read his literature. But this mild and meek follower of God also participated in an attempted assassination of Adolf Hitler. I don't condemn Bonhoeffer's actions. So I don't think Jesus is calling us to pacifism, right? I don't think that's going on. And he says, resist the evil one. There's more going on underneath the service. Jesus is not, also not calling on governments to lay down arms. Now, it seems crazy to me that hundreds of thousands of people could die from one atomic bomb. That's crazy to me. I would be ecstatic if all nations of the world would, would be rid of these evil kind of weapons. But Jesus is not making a specific comment on the arsenal of the United States of America or Russia or Germany or wherever else. Here's a fascinating fact. Leo Tolstoy, he wrote the book, um, he was the author of War and Peace, which many of you read, perhaps in high school. He wanted the world to be done away with all military and police. He's like, we shouldn't have police, we shouldn't have military. It's interesting how he wrote, how he came to this conclusion, is that he was reading this passage in the Gospel of Matthew. Again, misinterpretation and misapplication. I think. So what does this principle that Jesus is teaching us, what is this principle that he's teaching us this morning? Our Lord shows us that another principle governs how we interact with others, especially someone who has wronged you. Jesus is concerned about your attitude in denying yourself. Jesus calls you and me to deny privileges and rights for the sake of other people. I said earlier, we think so horizontally, we forget what's going on vertically. There's other virtues, there's Christian virtues that Jesus is wanting us to see. Again, we're not suspending the temporal. We're trying to understand how God is calling us to live in the temporal in light of the spiritual. At, at men's group on Wednesday, I was lamenting to the guys that it's sometimes a shame the type of headings 
that are imposed upon our modern English Bibles. So many of you have an ESV that you're holding on to right now. And while it can be helpful from time to time, uh, verses and chapter headings were all inserted into the Bibles around the 16th century, something like that. Sometimes we run into headings that are actually very unhelpful. And in the ESV, this is an unhelpful heading. It says retaliation. And the assumption all of a sudden, if you're reading the ESV, is like this, this Bible passage is about what it means to not retaliate. And I would say that's not actually what Jesus is saying. It's about denying yourself rights and privileges when you've been wronged. What does denying yourself look like? Take a look at the example given to us by our Lord. Read the rest of verse 39. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him also the other. Here's the first correction, which is the rejoinder from verse 38. I want to urge you to not take these words literally, by the way. If you take these words literally, then you miss the point of what Jesus is making. You miss the principle. Jesus is not saying, if you're slapped on the cheek, you then need to turn your neck so that the abuser can take a slap at the other cheek. You miss the point if you hold this view. Christ is telling you that when you're personally wrong, there is a higher virtue than retaliation. There is a Christian response that is born out of self-denial. Sure, there are temporal consequences to sinful actions in this temporal world, right? Governments execute, they create laws, they execute uh, laws to hold citizens accountable when laws are broken. That's the ideal, right? Temporal laws have temporal consequences. But Christians are called to a spiritual response. What is the response? What did Billy, Billy Bray give the guy when he was slapped in the face? What did he say? I forgive you. I forgive you. And his forgiveness was an act of mercy. Our response should also be grace and love. Jesus tells us to not trade insult for insult, even if the insults keep coming. Listen, I know this is hard for many people to receive and apply. I get it. Quick story, and I'm, I'm redacting a lot of information because it's fresh. This week, um, I was accused of something that I didn't do, right? And I had to process kind of on the fly, and I have had this passage on mind, like, what do I do, right? And I was, I was processing this with Sharice. I'm like, I don't, we could easily make our case and be right. Easily. It's like that. But I don't think that's what the Lord is calling us to do. I think we're to endure for the sake of the gospel. I know this is hard. Why is it hard? Because we constantly rely on earthly laws to provide justice and equality. But Christ calls his followers to something more. Christ wants you to see the bigger picture. As you read in the, um, the book called Horse and His Boy by C.S. Lewis, it's part of the Chronicles and Narnia series. 
We're called to onwards and upwards to Narnia and the north. There's a bigger picture, a greater virtue. Jesus wants you to see and experience. I think we can apply this virtue to what we see on the internet. The internet is a cesspool of insults, especially Twitter. Frankly, I'm unimpressed with how some Christians engage in social media, and I've certainly made my mistakes in this regard. It goes something like this. Person A posts a hot take, which is fine. You get the freedom to post your hot take on Twitter. Then person B overtly insults person A because he does not like the hot take. And then person A tells person B that his mom is ugly. You know, it goes, it, I, just, I just reduced Twitter for you. And round and round it goes. Now here's a tip for everyone young and old. The moment you find yourself in a toxic conversation on the internet or in person, just disengage. Heed the words of Christ to resist the temptation to trade insults. If you continue to receive unjust insults, ex perhaps extending grace and mercy is the most Christ-like thing you could possibly do. Perhaps your virtuous conduct ends up being a testimony of the work of God in your life. We're so quick to defend ourselves. And there are times, yes, that is needed. But when we try to defend ourselves, we often forget, what does Christ want me to do in this situation? We're not asking that question first. Perhaps the way you respond is an opportunity for you to be salty to that other person. So it's like, turn the other cheek. For each example given by our Lord, I want to make a Christological connection. What Christ asked of us was first demonstrated by him. These days, we all get worked up over verbal insults. For some people, when there are insults, the impulse is, like I said earlier, to become defensive. Perhaps you do not reply to that tweet or Facebook comment, but in your heart, you're still bitter toward that other person, hurling insults. Yet the call is to turn the other cheek, just like Christ. We read in the Gospel of Luke, the insults hurled at our Lord when he was crucified. We read this. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You get the sense that Billy Bray was steeped in this. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, the chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. We read in Isaiah 53 that Jesus was mocked, and yet he opened not his mouth. And I take that to mean he didn't defend himself. He certainly did not mock in return. We read in Luke that Jesus pleaded with the Father that the mockers and the scoffers would be forgiven. Unbelievable. Same thing Billy Bray did after he was unjustly punched in the face. He extended forgiveness. That is quite amazing. 
It is quite amazing. And here, here's the question I'll level to you. What demonstrates Christ more? Responding with a punch or offering forgiveness? Now, let me be very clear. You are not called to be a pushover. Jesus was not a pushover. In the blink of an eye, our Lord could have decimated the entire world, could have judged the world right there. It could have been Sodom and Gomorrah 2.0 or Nineveh 2.0. But Christ did not level everything. Why? Love. He loves his people. I mean, he forgave the mockers and the scoffers while hanging on a cross. Jesus is not advocating for you to be a pushover. He wants you to go onwards and upwards. God wants you to see the, that the virtues of Christ are also yours. Jesus doesn't stop there. Our Lord tells us in verse 40, And if someone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Uh, the NASB is a little bit clearer to our uh, modern sensibilities. It says this, If anyone wants to sue you over your shirt, y'all wearing a shirt right now, let him also take your coat. The first garment mentioned is the basic garment worn in some form or another by everyone. Everyone has a shirt. The second garment is like a supplementary, supplements the inner garment. It serves a number of practical functions. It can carry grain and objects. It was essential for cold weather. The poor would use it as a blanket at night. So the tunic would be like a shirt and the cloak would be like a coat. And we see there's a little more legalese behind verse 20, or verse 40, excuse me. In Exodus 22, we read that a person could be sued for their coat, but probably not their shirt. What is the point Jesus is making? Denying the self may require giving up your rights. Like, don't sue the other person. And if they sue you, give away. Even more than denying yourself of rights, Jesus calls you to change the terms of the agreement so that the other party actually receives more from you. This is crazy. It really is. When you think about it, what Jesus is asking of us. It seems crazy. because No one thinks like that. No one talks like this. If the option is living Christ-like or clutching to your American rights, I mean, I hope you choose. I hope Sean Powers chooses Christ. Listen, the principle is, is difficult. I get it. You might bleed, for example, red, white, and blue because of how much you love the afforded rights uh, from this country, right? And I get it. I'm a, I'm a gun-owning, cowboy boot-wearing American Christian. I, I, I check all the stereotypical boxes of what a person loves America. I get it. But the rights and privileges afforded to me by the U.S. Constitution do not compare to being a slave to Christ. Do not compare. There will be a day when the U.S. Constitution will crumble along with all your rights. But if you have Christ, you have all that you need. Again, the teaching of, of Christ are not about the shirt and the coat. It's about your willingness to die to yourself, especially as it relates to how you treat another person. Here's the second Christological principle. 
it is one thing to give up your shirt and coat for someone, but are you willing to follow the example of Christ, right? We read in Romans 5, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ is calling you to die to yourself by holding everything you own loosely. And Christ can ask you, he can ask that of you because he literally died for you. You, a wretched and poor sinner, have been regenerated and given the greatest gift, faith to know Christ is Savior. He died for you, and He is Lord. He is your King. When the gospel shapes your reality, giving up your shirt and your coat is not a big deal. I'm not expecting people to take off their shirts. Keep your shirts on. That's the point. If you're like, here you go. It's not what Jesus is saying. We're to die to ourselves for the other person. There's one final example worth considering. We read in verse 41, and if anyone forces you to go to one go one mile, go with him 2 miles. What does he mean here? Many of you have heard or heard the proverb, go the extra mile. Well, you have Jesus probably to thank. What Jesus isn't saying here is that his followers need to put in the extra effort to win a ball game or ace a test or complete those additional tasks at work. All those things are fine, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. Like, if that's what you think Jesus is saying, we're actually making a beeline back toward legalism. No, Christ intends you to go deeper to address your character. It's not conclusive, but some historians have argued that Roman soldiers were able to command Jewish citizens to carry their items from point A to point B. So if a soldier was, was walking through Bethlehem, which is right outside Jerusalem, he could take a citizen and say, hey, I need you to carry my items from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. And by the way, the Jews are not happy to have the Romans occupying Israel, right? No one wants the Canadians or the Mexicans to come into the United States and occupy our land. We're not going to feel good about that. The Jews in Israel did not feel good about the Romans in their land. Now think about what Jesus is saying. It is not enough to carry the Roman soldiers, his items, to Jerusalem. But if the soldier continues past Jerusalem, you take his items to the next town. So Jesus is calling his followers to serve their enemy. Functionally, that's what's going on here. Jesus is, is basically setting the table for the next passage, which is a call to love your enemies. That's next week. Here's the bottom line. When you're face-to-face -face with someone you do not like, is the disposition of your heart to serve or to retaliate? Like you just want to get the upper hand. Are you willing to give up your time, money, and energy to, to, to demonstrate Christ to that other person, even if that person is your enemy? Here's the final Christological connection. Jesus did not go one mile. He didn't, he didn't just go two miles. Jesus took the hard road up the hill to Calvary. The distance is not the point. The motive is the point. The virtue is the point. The path Christ took to the cross won the day along with the hearts and lives of his followers. Christ denied his life that we might gain ours. And if you've been redeemed by Christ, here's your calling. It's the same calling we see with Jesus. We read in Luke 9, 
And Jesus said this to all, if anyone would come after me, you want to be a follower of Jesus? If anyone would come after me, you want to be a follower of Jesus, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, you deny your life, for Jesus' sake, will save it. It is stunning that Jesus was talking about crosses before he was crucified on his cross. I want to end by asking one fundamental question in light of what we've learned from Christ. What is Jesus calling you to do? It's an action question. How are you going to live out these principles from today's passage? It's great to be taught and build up in your knowledge of the Bible. I want you all to know your Bible. You grow in faith when the Bible is faithfully preached. But your faith needs to be put into practice. So what is Jesus calling you to do? Here are a few thoughts in closing. First, you can begin by considering your closest relationships. When you are wronged, do you, is your first impulse to retaliate? To defend yourself? Or do you attempt to apply the teachings of Christ to your life? Do you turn the other cheek? Do you see how turning the other cheek is actually an example of Christ at work in you? Are you willing to give your coat and your shirt? Go the extra mile. Often, the most significant impact you can make for Christ is directly in front of you, right? It's in your home. It's in your workplace, your school, your community. It's a great way to be salty. Second, I didn't have time to dig into verse 42, but in light of what it says, are you generous to those around you, right? Is your heart, in your heart, is your disposition to be generous? Not everyone you interact with is a family member or friend. And and verse 42 is about being generous to anyone you engage with, including the person that might be intentionally harming you. The point of that particular verse, which does connect to the previous verses, is that in your character, do you understand that generosity has no limits? No limits. And then last, do you practice denying yourself of rights and privileges for the sake of the gospel? I'm not saying you can never leverage, leverage a right or privilege. Paul did. There were times when Paul did leverage his Roman rights for the sake of the gospel. But what I am saying is when it comes to exercising a right or privilege, is that the greater priority or is the gospel the greater priority? Which one will you choose? I'll end with this statement. The fact that you're still listening to me preach on how to give up everything to follow Christ tells me God's at work. (laughs) Or you're just really kind, folks. But I do believe God is at work as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, and I thank God for that. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.